Luke chapter 19, we begin in verse 28. And when he had thus spoken, he went before ascending up to Jerusalem. Let me pause there just to note that when you went to Jerusalem, it was always uphill. Find it interesting to note there, he ascended up to Jerusalem. That's why there's a section of the Psalms in the Psalter that are called Songs of Degrees. They are thought to be Psalms that were sung on on the way to Jerusalem. Uh, Going upward, sometimes they're called Songs of Ascent. Songs that were sung while going up the mountain to Jerusalem. So this is Christ now. He is ascending up to Jerusalem, verse 29. And it came to pass when he was come nigh to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go ye into the village over against you, in the which at your entering ye shall find a colt tied, whereon yet never man sat. Loose him and bring him hither, And if any man ask you, why do ye loose him? Thus shall ye say unto him, because the Lord hath need of him. And they that were sent went their way, and found even as he had said unto them. And as they were loosing the colt, the owners thereof said unto them, Why loose ye the colt? And they said, The Lord hath need of him. And they brought him to Jesus, And they cast their garments upon the colt, and they set Jesus thereon. And as he went, they spread their clothes in the way. And when he was come nigh, even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed be the King that cometh in the name of the Lord, Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees from among the multitude said unto him, Master, rebuke thy disciples. And he answered and said unto them, I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. And when he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it, saying, If thou hadst known, Even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. For the day shall come upon thee that thine enemy shall cast a trench about thee and compass thee round and keep thee in on every side and shall lay thee even with the ground and thy children within thee and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another, because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. And he went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold therein, and them that bought, saying unto them, It is written, My house is the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. And he taught daily in the temple, But the chief priests and the scribes and the chief of the people sought to destroy him and could not find what they might do, for all the people were very attentive to hear him. Amen. We'll end our reading at the end of the chapter. We know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word. And oh, may it be said of us, 
that we were very attentive to hear him. May that indeed be the case today. I want to call your attention in particular to verse 44. Verse 44, that shall lay thee even, this is now in the midst of a pronouncement of judgment on Jerusalem, and shall lay thee even with the ground and thy children within thee, and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another, and then focus on these words in particular, because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. Thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. You could say that the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem appeared to mark a high point of Christ's earthly ministry. It seems that the whole crowd recognized him for who he was. And I believe that in Luke's gospel in particular, Luke devotes much space toward building up to this climax of Jesus entering Jerusalem. Hence, back in chapter 9 in Luke's gospel, in verse 51, we're told that it came to pass when the time was come that he should be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. He steadfastly set his face to go there. He was resolved to make this final journey to Jerusalem. It was in keeping with his mission, and he was determined to see it through. And from that point on in Luke's gospel, we have the record of Christ making that final journey toward Jerusalem. Everything that takes place in Luke's gospel, from chapter 9, verse 51, takes place in the context of our Lord making that final journey to Jerusalem. Ten chapters later, in the account we've read this morning, the Lord has at last arrived. And the crowd around him has grown to a multitude. The expectations were very high. Will the Messiah now set up his kingdom and break the yoke of the Roman Empire? Will the Jewish leaders at last be convinced that Jesus is the Messiah? Everything in the setting of the chapter contributes to the idea that this was indeed a triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And so we read in verse 37 that the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. It seems that the noise of the crowd was deafening much to the, display, uh, to the dismay of the Pharisees, so much so that we read in John's Gospel their reaction to the crowd and to their cheering. And in John chapter 19, it says, The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, Perceive ye how ye prevail nothing? Behold, the world is gone after him. It's as if they're saying our best efforts to bring this man down, our, our best efforts to stem the tide of this man's popularity have all failed and the whole world is following him now. And they felt a sense of defeat and dismay. So it seemed that Christ's influence had prevailed and that their influence had failed. 
How strange then that in that kind of setting and at the very point of such a climax, we're told in verse 41 that when he, Christ, was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it. He beheld the city and wept over it. One Greek grammarian describes the term wept as meaning that Christ burst into tears with audible weeping. Oh, what a strange contrast that would have been to the noise of the multitude. The crowd was cheering, but Christ was weeping. Christ knew, of course, what awaited him. I like the comments of J.C. Ryle on this incident. He notes of Christ that he knew well the character of the inhabitants of Jerusalem, their cruelty, their self-righteousness, their stubbornness, their obstinate prejudice against the truth, their pride of heart were not hidden from him. He knew well what they were going to do to himself within a very few days. His unjust judgment, his delivery to the Gentiles, his sufferings, his crucifixion were all spread out distinctly before his mind's eye. And yet knowing all this, our Lord pitied Jerusalem. He beheld the city and wept over it. Now the reason for Christ weeping is not left to us as a matter of speculation. The passage tells us very plainly why Christ wept over the city. He wept because he could see their judgment coming. He could see the destruction of the city near at hand. He foretells that event in verses 43 and 44. And we know now that Christ's prophecy was fulfilled to the letter in 70 A.D. when the Romans destroyed the city and the temple. Christ goes further, however, in his lamentation than just predicting that awful event. He tells why. And this is where we need to focus our attention this morning. This is where the same message in all its solemnity comes to us today. Centuries later, listen to the explanation he gives for the foreseen destruction of Jerusalem at the end of verse 44, because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. That's why this is going to happen. That's why this city's going to be destroyed and the temple leveled, because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. The tragic irony of this entire passage is that Christ was so near and yet so far from them. He was near in his bodily presence. He had proved many times over and over again that he had been sent from God. He had vindicated his message with his miracles and those miracles proved his identity. He had been among them and yet, they did not know the time of their visitation. You know, there's a sense in which such a statement is no less true today than it was then. We live, you see, in a day that could be called a day of divine visitation. 
The Spirit of Christ is as much a reality today as the bodily presence of Christ was a reality in the days of the apostles. I can remember Dr. Cairns on a couple of occasions making the remark that we are still living in the wake of Pentecost. The pouring out of the Holy Spirit has had an impact that has not ceased even down to this very hour. There are designed periods of visitation by Christ, you see. Times of revival, when the Spirit is poured out in extraordinary measure, can be called times of visitation. But they're not the only times. When we meet together in this house on the Lord's Day, we could call these meetings, indeed we should be able to call these meetings, times of divine visitation in accordance with the promise of Christ that he would visit his people when they gather in his name. When we gather as families around God's word or when we meet privately with Christ in the secret place of prayer, these are all times of divine visitation. And yet, don't we have to sadly acknowledge that there are many times when it could be said of us, Thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. It's certainly true of sinners who, like the Pharisees, reject Christ. The day of salvation is now. The day when those that are strangers to God can be reconciled to God and can be brought into the family of God is now. This is a day of divine visitation insofar as it's a day of divine invitation to draw near to God to the saving of your soul. But what of those that know Christ, those who have placed their faith in Christ, why is it that very often they know not the times of their visitation? You see, very often what's true of the sinner can also be true of the Christian. Both can miss the time of their visitation. So that's what I want to focus on this morning, this theme of missing the day of visitation. We must not miss the time of our visitation. We should not miss it. We must not miss it. Sadly, we have to acknowledge, if we're honest, that we do miss it. How can we overcome such a propensity? We must avoid the tragedy of Christ being so near and yet so far. And in the moments that remain, I'd like to point out three reasons why we must not miss the time of our visitation. Consider with me, first of all, we must not miss the time of our visitation because missing that time is inexcusable. Missing the time of visitation is inexcusable. There's no excuse for it. Christ makes the point emphatically that the sin of the Jews was inexcusable. Look at what he says in verse 42. If thou hadst known, even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace. If thou hadst known, even thou, he says. And that's what makes this point emphatic. The phrase, even thou. 
It's as if he's saying that if anybody didn't understand the day of visitation, it shouldn't have been the Jews at Jerusalem. It shouldn't have been those that had the oracles of God who knew the teachings of Moses and the prophets. Others might be excused for knowing little or nothing, but certainly not the Jews and certainly not the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. Their entire religion, you see, was designed to point them to Christ. The sacrifices that they offered foreshadowed Christ. The furnishings of the temple all pointed to Christ. The scriptures they possessed told of Christ. Now one had come on the scene who had fulfilled the prophecies concerning Christ. He was born where Christ was to be born, and he had done miracles that no other man had ever done. John the Baptist had pointed to him as the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. His own father had testified with a voice from heaven, calling him his beloved son. How could they miss him? Why would they reject him? Why would the very ones that accompanied him into Jerusalem call for his crucifixion just a couple of days later? I can remember Ian Paisley once making a very good point that I've never forgotten when he said, don't follow the crowd. Don't follow the mob. They're too fickle. The ones that cry out hallelujah, laid their garments down in his path as a show of respect to him, the same ones would do a 180 within a couple of days and call for him to be crucified. Don't follow the crowd. Sadly, the reason they rejected him was the same reason that many reject him today. They were not willing to submit to him. The only Messiah they would have received would have been one that was willing to submit to them. Listen to Christ's description of that generation. This is found a couple of chapters earlier in Luke chapter 7 and verse 31. And the Lord said, Whereunto then shall I liken the men of this generation? And to what are they like? They are like unto children sitting in the marketplace and calling one to another and saying, We have piped unto you, and ye have not danced. We have mourned to you, and ye have not wept. You know, that's the classic mark of a depraved sinner. He calls the shots. He names the tune. He leads the way and expects God to cater to him. One of the greatest fears that came upon the Jewish leaders is that Christ would take away their position and their prestige. So we read in John 11 and verse 48, If we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him, and the Romans shall come and take away both our place and nation. You see what they're concerned over? We're going to lose our station. We're going to lose our paycheck, I suppose. We're going to lose our prestige if we leave this man alone. 
So they missed the day of their visitation because they were unwilling to submit to Jesus Christ. They valued their place in this world more than they valued eternal life. And the same holds true today for those that are lost and outside of Christ. It's their refusal to submit that causes them to miss the day of their visitation. And for many sinners, their rejection of Christ is just as inexcusable as the Jews' rejection of him. How many have grown up in Christian homes? How many have been in a gospel church all their lives? How many have gone to Christian schools or have received a Christian education of whom it may be said, if thou hast known, even thou, at least in this thy day? Of all the people that should know, you are the ones that should know that Christ has come, that Christ has died, that Christ has risen from the dead. You are the ones that should submit to him. You are the ones that have learned of him. You've been in his house where he's worshipped. You've been instructed in his word. You've known how far short you come of his glory. You've learned of your need of him. You've learned of his provision for your salvation through his atoning blood. What then is it that would keep a young man or a young girl from knowing the day of their visitation? And the answer is that it's the same thing that kept the Jews from knowing the day of their visitation. They were unwilling to submit. Like them, you are bent on having your own ways. Oh, how many are there that say, uh, yes, I'll have Christ, but I'll have him on my terms. I'll only have Christ if I can have my way too, and especially the way of the world. Take the world, but give me Jesus, the hymn writer writes. But in our modern day era of compromise and a watered down gospel, the message seems to me, give me the world and give me Jesus. I want them both. We need to understand and appreciate this morning that rejection of Christ is inexcusable. We're tempted at times by our theology to deny this. We acknowledge that a sinner is dead in trespasses and sins. We are reformed after all. We acknowledge the need of the Holy Spirit and salvation. But these things don't warrant the notion that sinners are therefore excused in their sins. They are, in fact, responsible for what they hear and what they know. And those who have heard of Christ and know of Christ are responsible to come to Christ. And they'll be held accountable on the day of Christ. The issue on that day will not be whether or not you're among the elect. The issue will be, what have you done with Jesus Christ? How have you responded to him? And could I add a practical word here for Christians? There's a sense, thankfully, in which as Christians, you've known the time of visitation. 
You've seen your need of salvation. You've recognized that now is the accepted time of salvation. You've closed in with Christ to the saving of your soul. You've identified with him in baptism as a believer if you weren't baptized as an infant. So in that respect, you've known the time of visitation, but in another sense, you continue to miss that time. You miss time with Christ. You miss your visits with Christ. It's possible for a Christian's heart to become so calloused that he can attend church and still miss the time of visitation. He can open the Bible and miss the time of visitation there also. Your failure to tend to your soul and your tendency to tend too much to the vain things of the world leave your soul desensitized to the things of God. And in a practical sense, you miss the time of visitation and the missing of that time is inexcusable. Thou, even thou, Christ says of you, Even you who know Christ, who have gained a saving interest in Christ, you of all people, miss the time of visitation through worldliness and neglect? It's inexcusable. It's inexcusable for the sinner who has learned of Christ to miss Christ, and it's inexcusable for the Christian who knows Christ to miss Christ. Oh, may God himself stamp it on every heart, therefore, so that we'll take the necessary measures to avoid missing the time of our visitation. The argument becomes even more compelling when you consider next that we must not miss the time of our visitation, secondly, because of the effect it has on Christ. Because of the effect it has on Christ. He is impacted. He is emotionally affected by those who miss the time of visitation. Look again at verse 41 where we read, And when he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it. You see what missing the time of visitation did to Jesus? Oh, you might be tempted to think, He's just an angry judge standing over the city just waiting to condemn it uh, because of their negligence and their pride and their self-righteousness and their unbelief. Truth be told, it broke his heart. That's what comes out in the verse. When he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it. Listen again to this quote from J.C. Ryle. And and keep in mind now who J.C. Ryle was. He was an Anglican. He was a contemporary of Spurgeon. He was a, one of these good, evangelical, Calvinistic Anglicans. J.C. Ryle. Listen to what he writes. We err greatly if we suppose that Christ cares for none but his own believing people. He cares for all. His heart is wide enough to take an interest in all mankind. His compassion extends to every man, woman, and child on earth. He has a love of general pity for the man who is going on still in wickedness, as well as a love of special affection for the sheep who hear his voice and follow him. He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 
Hardened sinners are fond of making excuses for their conduct, but they will never be able to say that Christ was not merciful and was not ready to save. His arms are open wide to receive anyone that will come. I think it's appropriate here to read the words of John Calvin also on this passage, since there might be a tendency among some who espouse Calvin's theology to think that Calvin felt otherwise. Listen to these words from Calvin now as he writes. As there was nothing which Christ more ardently desired than to execute the office which the Father had committed to him, and as he knew that the end of his calling was to gather the lost sheep of the house of Israel, he wished that his coming might bring salvation to all. This was the reason why he was moved with compassion and wept over the approaching destruction of the city of Jerusalem. I was drawn to this text initially by a sermon I began to read by Robert Murray McShane. The opening words of his sermon following the reading of the text are these. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the same Savior now that he was that day when he wept over Jerusalem. If he were on earth now as he was then, I have no doubt but that there are many here tonight over whom he would weep, as he did over impenitent Jerusalem. The same would, of course, hold true in our day, more than 150 years after the time of McShane. Sinners who miss the time of visitation break the heart of Christ. Christ, you see, knew what awaited him in Jerusalem. He knew he would be apprehended. He knew he would be physically abused. He knew a crown of thorns awaited him. He knew he would be scourged and spit upon and nailed to a tree. He willingly submitted to these sufferings. Beyond these sufferings, he submitted himself to the wrath of his Father in our place. And in these sufferings, he not only atoned for our sins, but in that atonement, he would demonstrate the love of God towards sinners. Even though we're not worthy, even though hell should be our portion, Christ would nevertheless answer our rebellion with the greatest display of his love that divine omniscience could conceive. And so our day could be called a time of the visitation of the love and goodness of God. Sinners and saints alike are granted the temporal blessings that the world can give on account of Christ's atoning death. Stop and ponder that for a moment. Why does this world even continue? Why doesn't Christ come back immediately? Or why didn't he come back immediately? Well, it was because of his purpose of redemption. The fact that he hasn't returned means he still has people to save. There are still souls being gathered in. Were it not so, he would be here. How is it then that sinners can reject Christ and that Christians can neglect Christ? It is indeed a phenomenon that should lead us to wonder and astonishment when we see it all around us and when we detect it in our own hearts. It should cause you to give pause and consider that when you reject Christ, you break his heart. You break his heart because you spurn his love. 
Let's mark it then as something that is infallibly true. The testimony of our text makes it plain. Missing the day of visitation breaks the heart of Christ. May the truth of it compel sinners to come to Christ, and may it compel Christians to tend to Christ. We dare not miss the times of our visitation. Such a thing constitutes inexcusable sin, and it has a solemn impact on Christ, an emotional impact. Let's consider finally that we must not miss the the time of visitation because of the effect it has on us. We've seen the impact it has on Christ. Let's think of the impact it can have on us. And there is both a positive and negative aspect to our consideration of this heading. If I consider the negative effect first, it will enable me to close on a positive note. The most obvious effect of missing the time of visitation was pronounced by Christ himself in verses 43 and 44. Look at what he says. For the day shall come upon thee that thine enemy shall cast a trench about thee and compass thee round about and keep thee in on every side and shall lay thee even with the ground and thy children within thee and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. Oh, their rejection of him invited judgment and this is what Christ is saying to them in effect. Even though he would bear judgment, they would nevertheless be subject to judgment because of their spurning of his love or they're missing the time of their visitation. We know now, historically, not a difficult thing to verify, that that judgment was fulfilled in the year 70 A.D. Josephus, maybe you've heard his name, he was a historian, a contemporary of Jesus Christ, an unbelieving Jew, He describes the events of that judgment in graphic detail in his history. If you have copies of the works of Josephus and have read of the destruction of Jerusalem, then you'll know what I mean when I say it was dreadful, it was terrible, it was awful. Or if you have a copy of Albert Barnes' New Testament notes, you can find much the same thing there as Barnes quotes from Josephus extensively. There is another aspect to Christ's judgment, however, that shouldn't be overlooked. Notice what Christ says at the end of verse 42. If thou hadst known, even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. Their inexcusable rejection of Christ led to Christ giving them over to their willful blindness. And so we read, But now are they hid from thine eyes. Having eyes they would see not, having ears they would hear not, or in other words, the rebellious hearts would keep them from being affected by the word of Christ. I find this aspect of Christ's statement to be a very frightful thing, and the reason I find it to be very frightful is because I can't help but observe that it's very characteristic of our day. 
men and women, boys and girls, who are not affected by the word of God. They may read and they may hear, and yet having eyes they see not, and having ears they hear not. The Bible, in a sense, is a closed book to them. And why? It's because they have for too long missed the time of visitation. Their hearts are so much in the world that the time of visitation in Christ's house avails them nothing. They're so devoted to the things that entertain and amuse that any time they open their Bibles, it seems to be beyond them. They miss the time of visitation with Christ over the open book. If only you knew, Christ says in effect, but because you don't, the glorious truths of the gospel are hidden from you. That's the negative impact of missing the times of visitation. There is a positive consideration under this point also, even though it's presented in a negative fashion. Verse 42, notice, At least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace. You see the impact of Christ's words? The time of visitation was designed to secure their peace and their well-being, their joy and their bliss, their stability, their satisfaction, their happiness, should have and would have been their portion had they not missed the time of their visitation. You begin to see then what a compelling case can be made for avoiding missing the time of your visitation. Your time in God's house is designed by God to bring about your peace and your joy and your happiness and your stability. Your time in God's word should bring about the same things. And it does. It does happen when you keep communion with Christ. But when you neglect attending to your heart as the Spirit of God moves on your heart to convict you of sin and draw you to Christ, then you miss the time of visitation. Church becomes a place to sleep. Because your worldliness desensitizes you to spiritual things. The Bible becomes a hard book and a dull book because of your spiritual carelessness. You rob yourselves, therefore, of great blessing. You throw away your peace. Or to use a phrase that Jonah uses, you forsake your own mercy. Jonah speaks with the wisdom of Solomon when he says in Jonah chapter 2.8, and this is when he's been swallowed by the whale and is taken down to the depths of the deeps, uh, the, the feet of the mountain, so to speak. And he says in that verse, they that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. Oh, this becomes a serious matter then. Missing the time of visitation. For sinners, it's tantamount to missing salvation, which leaves them lost and subject to condemnation. For Christians, it's a tragic 
irony to gain Christ and then neglect Christ in such a way that you miss the time of Christ's visitation to your soul. In both instances, the irony of such a tragedy is that Christ can be so near and yet so far. May Christ himself, therefore, help us all to appreciate that such a thing is inexcusable. It affects Christ insofar as it breaks his heart, and it affects us insofar as it robs us of those things designed for our good and leaves us in our own callousness. The solution is, of course, to keep close to Christ to open the book and say, Oh, Lord, give me ears to hear. Give me eyes to see. Give me a sensitive heart. Help me to perceive the reality of the truths that I'm about to read as I spend this time now in thy word. Keep close communion with Christ. And the solution is initially to the invitation of Christ for sinners to come to him for rest. If you've never come, You need to come, and you need to come now. There is no excuse for delay. Oh, may God help us this day and in the coming days not to miss the times of our visitation. Let's close then in prayer. Oh, Lord, as we bow now in thy presence, bring our meeting to a close. We thank Thee for the heart of Christ. We thank Thee for this clear revelation of Christ that is found even in this chapter in Luke's Gospel. We know, O Lord, that Christ does not take any delight in the condemnation of sinners. We know from His own testimony that His arms are open wide to receive all that will come to Him. And, O Lord, we know that that same invitation is extended to his people on a daily basis. Help us, therefore, Lord, not to miss as Christians our times of visitation. Is this not the very reason you saved us so that we might enjoy our visits with God and with Christ? O Lord, save us from calloused hearts. Save us, O Lord, from the judgment, deliver us from the judgment of being given over to calloused hearts and grant that we may indeed enjoy the things that are designed for our peace and our joy and our well-being. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.